This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by BrewGuru, a free smartphone app made by our friends at the American Homebrewers Association. BrewGuru helps beer lovers save money on beer and beer brewing supplies, and it serves up exclusive content from Zymergy Magazine and homebrewersassociation.org. BrewGuru is free for Android, iPhone, and iPad. Check it out. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why Yeast. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we take you to 25 different brewers' homes to brew with them. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beard and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And after last episode's epic anniversary revisit of our first year of broadcasting, well, now we're here ready to get year number two started off. And we've got a great episode lined up for you today. We're going to go into the pub, talk a little bit about the beer world. Uh, we're going to go and talk uh, some more of our Portland trip. And we're going to kick off a little bit of science. And we're going to talk some stuff in the brewery all around. We're taking a full day today. We hope you're along for the ride. And really, uh, what choice do you have? Because you're, you're here, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we'll be back to uh, answering some questions. We're trying to see if we can answer some of the questions you guys have sent in uh, in the Ask Denny and Drew section of the show. Before we get into that, though, we want to uh, remind you that you can support us by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. You can click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to Brew Your Own Magazine, or you can click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. 
When you do either one of those, a little bit of money comes back and helps uh, to support the podcast and uh, our travels and uh, some of the interviews we do. You can also click on the Patreon link and donate whatever amount of money you feel like to our charity. And our current charity is the Children's Tumor Foundation, which supports research into the causes and treatment of pediatric neurofibromatosis. So uh, please uh, support us to help us support them and uh, support the kids that have this terrible, terrible disease. Yeah, don't you think a buck is worth helping a kid out? Give a buck. Hey, man. Exactly. Give a buck. Okay. Remember, <laughs> that was a B on there. That was buck. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, how about we get out of here? We go over to the pub. Sounds good to me. We're going to run over to the pub, grab a beer, sit down, and chat about the beer life. We'll be right back. Do you want to make the move to stainless steel, but you don't want to drop a grand or more? Chapman Brewing Equipment provides high-quality stainless steel mash tuns, kettles, and fermenters at an affordable price. Larry Medeiros, owner and operator of Bridgeview Beer and Wine Supply in Oregon, says, These are not only the best brewing pots made, they're also the best prices and will work on induction stoves as well. Ask for Chapman Brewing Equipment wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. We are here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in your town, USA, having a couple beers and talking about the beer life. Uh, what did you order today, Drew? Uh, I'm having uh, an El Segundo Brewing Company 2-5 Left double IPA. Uh, El Segundo wow. Brewing Company is right, right near where I work, and it's also right next to uh, LAX, effectively. And so, yeah, a lot of their a lot of their beer names are either aviation or oil industry uh, inspired, and that is a company that really, really knows how to play with the hops. Wow, man, that sounds really interesting. I have to check them out next time I'm down there. Oh yeah, uh, I'm having my first Sierra Nevada celebration of the year, man. I just I look forward to this beer every single year. I can't wait for it to come out. Uh, I think it's my favorite holiday beer because there's nothing strange about it. It is just a straight-up, absolutely delicious IPA. People say, how can that be a holiday beer? It doesn't have spices and all that weird crap in it. Well, it's a holiday beer because they only release it during the holiday season. Duh. You know, it, it could be a year-round beer, but then it just wouldn't be special anymore. So, and And one word to those of you who say... This year's isn't as good as last year's, or, well, you know, they change the recipe every year. No, they never change the recipe. The only variations are year-to-year -year ingredient variations. And if you think this year's isn't as good as last year's, this is, that's become kind of a joke in the beer world, right? Indeed. Yeah, it's like, hey, this isn't as hoppy as it used to be. Well, or yeah. you're just used to more hops now yeah well and you don't remember it and people say well you know I've, I've kept them for 10 years and i did a vertical tasting well <laughs> you can't really compare a fresh one to one that's 10 years old can you yeah well and i always loved with uh, celebration that before they released torpedo or any other actual ipa everybody's like oh celebration's an ipa and sierra nevada used to be no it's not an ipa it's not an ipa <laughs> it's like, that's an ipa <laughs> 
yes, it is. <laughs> what else could it possibly be? <laughs> so. Well, and I and I will tell you, I think celebration. If you don't care about the fresh hop character of it, celebration ages beautifully for about ten years, and right. I think it actually really hits a peak of really interesting strong ale type flavors around year six. So huh. keep that in mind. Well, Okay, I'll, I'll try to do that uh, should I be able to uh, resist the urge to drink at all. There you go. Uh, yeah. So uh, Thanksgiving is just around the corner, huh? What are you drinking uh, with your Thanksgiving meal? I don't think it's going to come as any surprise to anybody if I say this word, Saison. I knew you were going to say that. I know. Well, it, to me, it, the Saison is just such a wonderful player on the table, and I actually have a couple of different Saisons uh, lined up. Including uh, obviously uh, Dupont and Avec Le Bon Vue. And the Dupont right. that I've actually lined up is the Dua Me, which is the one they did with American Hops. And Tommy wow. Arthur. Yeah, the, uh, Tommy Arthur helped them formulate Dupont with American Hops. And then I've got uh, a couple of Phantoms saved up for the finale. Cool, man. Yeah, I have to uh, tell you that, uh, that Cezanne Dupont is on my list also. That beer is like it was made to go with turkey almost. I haven't uh, actually made it down to my favorite bottle shop yet to stock up, so I'm not exactly sure which variations and what else there will be. I really love uh, a, a triple uh, for Thanksgiving also, but uh, we'll, see, we'll see if uh, if I actually have the nerve to buy and drink one this year. <laughs> well, you don't want to fall asleep in your apple pie? <laughs> or on the drive home. Uh, we're going to some friend's house uh, for dinner, so I have like a half-hour drive to get back home. Now I realize that's nothing to you LA people, but uh, I was going to say... Here, I was on the road last night for two hours to get home. Yeah, well, you're crazy. What can I say? That's true. So uh, to kind of go along with Thanksgiving and thinking about other people, uh, we want to give a shout out to the Noli Brew House in Spokane, Washington, who raised $15,000 for medical bills for a woman named Angel Fiorini. Angel is a mother of three children. And uh, when her house caught on fire, she went back into the burning house to save her children's lives, which is amazing enough as it is. When she went back in for the final child, the house collapsed around them and burned on top of them. She sheltered her daughter with her body. They both ended up with third-degree burns, but they're alive, and they're in intensive care at Harborview Hospital in Seattle. Uh, Noli Brewhouse, like I said, raised 15 grand to help pay for their medical expenses. If you're in the Spokane area, we really hope that you'll we'll go by the Noli Brewhouse and support them and let them know that you think what they did was extremely cool. And uh, that's what it's all about, right, man? Yeah, indeed. And I mean, hell, even if you're not in the Spokane area, reach out to Noli on their Twitter or their Facebook page. Just give the brewery a little love because, I mean, that's the sort of reason that I really dig on craft beer because it really is the community. Yeah, that's right, man. So, um, yeah, it's just, it just gives me chills to think about uh, this woman doing that and, uh, and people helping her out afterwards. So. Yeah, I'm not even sure I'd run into a fire to save myself. <laughs> I, hey, man, I go in for you. I promise. <laughs> that's just because you're afraid I'd take the beer with me. That's right. <laughs> okay, on a little bit more upbeat note now, uh, we have 
Not Your Father's Tap Room IPA and Cherry Ale. Uh, why don't you go ahead and talk a little bit about those? Yeah, so uh, Not Your Father's uh, a whole series of beers, a.k.a. Fusion Beverages, a.k.a. Four Loco, a.k.a. Small Town Brewery. Uh, they, you know, they're most famous for Not Your Father's Root Beer, Not Your Father's Ginger Ale, Not Your Father's any other soda flavor I think that you can think of. Uh, and just a series of concoctions that, for better or worse, sort of created a whole new market segment or reinvigorated a market segment with the hard soda idea. And surprisingly, their next big twist on how to how to capture the market, an IPA. It's a shocker. Whoever thought of releasing <laughs> an IPA? Uh, and but, yeah, they're like, oh, look, it's being brewed in Woodenville, Washington, which I think that means the Red Hook Brewery. And uh, th this is what makes theirs uh, special. It says here, uh, not your father's taproom IPA is brewed with U.S. and European malts, Yakima Valley hops, and single-source mountain spring water to deliver a distinct Indian pale ale with citrus and fruit notes. At 6.5 ABV, not your father's taproom IPA creates a citrusy, spicy, floral, and fruity taste. And, you know, it sounds like a, a, a darn good kind of like straight-ahead Pacific Northwest-style IPA. Uh, although I have to admit that having tried their root beer, it gives me a little pause. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it is what it is. But it, to me, the reason why I thought it was funny was just the, the sudden brand pivot to go from we're making hard sodas to, hey, we're making something special. We're making an IPA. And it's like, have you guys looked at the market recently? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? We drink a lot of IPAs up here in the Northwest. I know. Although they're not from the Northwest. They're from Illinois. Well, except for the, the brewery is brewing these in Woodenville, and both the IPA and the Cherry Ale are only going to be available in Oregon and Washington. Yeah, and you know, the Cherry Ale looks like uh, possibly it could be a bit Belgian-ish, huh? Yeah, they say that one's uh, uh, full-bodied, dominating, sweet and tart cherry notes, 8.5% ABV. So there you go. That's yeah. respectable. And again, the same sort of thing. Like, oh, look, U.S. and Belgian and German malts. Nobody uses those. Uh, right. Washington sour cherries and German hops. So, um, yeah, like I said, I, I mostly, this caught my attention just because of that pivot. And it made me laugh to go, uh, we're making something unique, an IPA. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> So, so uh, our good buddy, uh, Mike Tonsmeyer, has been at it again, huh? Oh, yeah. So uh, Mike has been playing around with, uh, he just put up a blog post about playing around with all the sort of Norwegian farmhouse ale strains. So the Kvex and what's the other one? Uh, Musi, I think it is. And of course, I'm going to butcher those names. Yeah, right. Uh, but he Voss actually. Voss and Muri. Right. Yeah, Voss and Muri. That's right. Those are the, the two distinct strains of Kvik or however you say that. Uh, that he ended up using, and he got to play around with those uh, courtesy of going out to Norway for a trip. And uh, just a really good uh, uh, blog from Mike talking about his experiences with it, and also talking about the fact that I hadn't realized, because I hadn't paid that much attention, that some of these yeast strains are actually available now in the U.S. I think uh, Omega Labs, uh, I think it's their Hothead strain, is one of, the, is one of these. And it uh, it's called Hothead because the these farmhouse strains are designed to brew way hot, like up in the uh, 90s, uh, all the way up to 100, which still makes me beg the question of when the heck does it get that hot up there? <laughs> really? But uh, 
Uh, so, and of course, Mike, uh, Mike uh, played around with a lot of this stuff with some guidance from Lars. Both Mike and Lars are, of course, in Homebrew All-Stars. Uh, oh, and uh, that's right. Uh, it's not just a mega uh, yeast bay, who we've had on the show before and we've talked about, and I've used their right. yeast before. Uh, they have one, uh, Sigmunds. And so you can actually get the Quebec strains now here in the U.S. and make your sort of juniper-infused uh, farmhouse ales. So really kind of cool. Mike put together some really good notes about uh, his very simple test and what he found uh, from a, a wort that he used from his grapefruit quinoa uh, sour that he put together. Wow, cool, man. Yeah. Grapefruit quinoa, huh? Uh, that sounds like Mike. There you go. So the next thing we want to talk about while we're here in the pub with our beers is uh, a recent article that popped up uh, in Craft Brewing Business uh, magazine and website. Uh, it's a malt industry update, and it's titled Specialty Malts Driving the Marketplace. And the takeaway is that the specialty malt market is exploding and is uh, projected to reach over $3 billion by 2022, uh, which is kind of like unbelievable. Now, specialty malts that they're talking about are not just like the crystal malts that we're thinking of. Uh, they're talking about roasted malts. They include things like uh, Munich, Vienna, and some Belgian malt varieties in that. Uh, which really are the largest share of the specialty uh, malt market. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're also used somewhat in the food industry also. Uh, the other thing I thought was interesting was that uh, they're predicting uh, that the Asia-Pacific region is uh, accounting for a significant share of the specialty malt market, huh? which kind of implies that, uh, that that region is shifting away from their traditional light lager brewing, huh? Yeah, well, I mean, it's no secret that Asia has always kind of been one of the big markets for growth in the global beer industry. There's a reason why uh, Anheuser-Busch and Miller kind of fought for years back and forth to try and get breweries into China, and it's actually a good portion of the reason why Anheuser-Busch and Miller merged was to be able to get greater access to Chinese markets and other uh, developing markets. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The most of their brewing has been around sort of Asian sweet lager type styles. And the fact that they're actually growing up or the, the specialty grain market is growing in that region is sort of indicative that I think we're going to see new styles developing in those areas, or at least a new flourishing of appreciation of styles in those regions. So if that actually happens, that is going to be immense in the yeah. world of beer. Because right now, one of the problems U.S. brewers face and U.S. craft brewers is about trying to penetrate foreign markets. And they've done some pretty good jobs of getting into, say, the U.K. and Germany and uh, the Scandinavia area. But beyond that, not, not so much. If Asia suddenly starts to open up, uh, like the Japanese market is already uh, starting to really be big in craft beer. I suspect you're going to start seeing more and more American craft beers heading that way. And if that's if you can take that specialty report with any sort of uh, uh, you know thumb to the wind, I think that's actually kind of telling. That would be kind of good. I, I did also think that it was interesting. The craft uh, craftbrewingbusiness.com also had an article on there from a couple of years back talking about. One of the biggest changes for the malting industry is the fact that craft brewing and this incredible rise of craft brewing that we see, like our breweries, our favorite breweries are using 
I think it was like three times the malt that they were selling to the mega breweries, which, I mean, no big surprise, but it's kind of right. cool to see that number actually there. And there's a reason why the maltsters are paying attention to that market now, even though it's much more fragmented, there's a lot of value there. Yeah. And the other thing that uh, it gets me thinking is I wonder what that will do to price and availability of those malts in the U.S. market if uh, suddenly Asia starts exploding. I know, right? So to speak. <laughs> I hope not literally. Yeah. No, no, no explosions literally. But I mean, the good thing is, I mean, let's think about the amount of specialty malt that we actually use per batch. I think we'll be okay. Well, I, again, when you start thinking though that the specialty malts include things like Munich and Vienna, that uh, that changes things just a hair. True. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we uh, we put up a survey recently asking people what they thought of the podcast, and uh, fortunately, most of them were very kind and didn't hurt our feelings or anything. Yeah, I was going to say uh, I'm. Pleased to say that we had great feedback. We got a lot of feedback. Uh, I'm actually still digging through some of it. I've made a summary of it for Denny because well, Denny's old and I don't want him to strain his eyes. But That's right. No, we got a lot of gr really great feedback from uh, folks. We have some interesting new projects in the work that uh, directly tie into the things that you mentioned in your uh, survey comments. Uh, however, we can't talk about those yet. Uh, but we do also take very kindly the words that you guys have mentioned, talking about the length of the show, talking about our experiments. We are ramping up a whole new series of experiments right now, but obviously the experiments have a lead time to them. So we need uh, to give our Igor some time to brew. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really. And, you know, and, and we really do appreciate all the feedback. We read it. Uh, we consider it. Uh, as with anything like that, not everybody's going to get what they want, but uh, we're going to we're going to really try and take your comments seriously and uh, incorporate them into future shows. Although I do want to object to one thing that I saw in the state of the podcast survey in terms yes. of uh, wide response. You all are a bunch of sick, sick monkeys. Because the very last question I put in there was, should Denny play more ukulele? Now, 21.7% of you responded with the response of, for the love of all things, Beery, no. 34.2% of you said, maybe, but can I name the tune? Uh, in which case, I'm going to say, let's get Denny to do War Pigs. Um, and an astonishing, astonishing mind-breaking number of you, 44.1% said, yes, I'm sort of strangely addicted to the warble warble of it all. Oh, man. I love you people, but you're weird. Alrighty, so I guess that uh, pretty much wraps things up here in the pub this week, talking about the beer life. We're going to finish off these beers and uh, head over to the brewery and talk about actually brewing something. We'll be wait, right back. Wait, wait, wait. Yes. I'm gonna, uh, I want another pint. I'm going to go get another <laughs> pint. Okay, Drew's going to order another pint, and then we're going to head over to the brewery, and we'll be right back.
We have made our way over to the brewery. We're sitting here amongst the uh, shiny equipment, and uh, we're going to talk about yeast this week, and specifically the Zurich lager yeast that uh, Drew is about to use. Uh, fill us in. All right. So for years and years, there was a beer called uh, Sammy Claus, and it's it's back again. But uh, for years, it was brewed by a brewery called Herlemann in uh, Switzerland. They brewed it every year on Swiss Christmas, which is December 6th. And they brewed it, and they let it age for a full year before releasing it uh, on the, the next Swiss Christmas. So this was a big tradition. It's the world's strongest lager. Uh, it comes in around 14%. And about 99, when I first got into brewing, uh, Herlemann decided, you know what, we're not doing this beer anymore because it's kind of silly and stupid. And I think that got sold to somebody else. But eventually, so the beer disappeared from the market, and my club picked it up to decide to do. And we made a beer called Falcon's Claws. And we made a couple of years of it and then uh, walked away from the project ourselves because another brewery, uh, Eggenberg in uh, Austria, picked up the rights to the recipe and the name and everything else and started putting it out on the market again. So, for whatever reason, this year, more than anything else, I've gotten a ton of questions about the Falcon's Claws recipe. Like, more than I have in the past six, seven years combined. So, that tells me it's time for us to make the beer again. And that's what we're doing. Now, the real key to it was when we first started doing the beer, we had a blend of yeast. We had Bavarian lager yeast. We had some Fleur Sherry in there to try and help finish the thing out because the beer itself comes in at an original gravity of 1.140. That is a <laughs> big, big beer. That's an elephant of a beer. Yeah. Uh, that's a blue whale of a beer. Yeah. So we, we tried doing it with all these different yeast strains and nothing ever worked. And then finally, in one of the last years that we did the project, White Labs released Zurich lager which is the Herlemann strain designed to ferment something super, super strong. And uh, we did it and the beer came out perfect and it was awesome. And so we got ready to do it again this year. And I'm looking around for the Zurich lager yeast. Can't find it anywhere. Nobody has it in stock. And so being enterprising and uh, dedicated to the idea that I have to do this, I reached out to Nava Parker at white labs and I said, Neva, is there any way I can get some Zurich lager yeast? Because I'm going to do this beer again, and it's not the right thing without it. And Neva uh, just said, oh, I have 200 vials of it in stock, or 200 packages in stock. So, sure, we'll get you some. And so, sure enough, next day at my house, shows up a box, and it's got four packs of Zurich lager yeast in it, all ready for me to go. And this weekend, I'm going to make a, a Hillespach as a yeast starter, I'm going to try and make about 10 gallons worth because, mm -hmm. uh, again, 1140 as a beer needs a lot of yeast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in times past, I used to make a five gallon batch to be a starter. The yeast cake was the starter for a 10 gallon batch of Falcon's Claws. So yeah, this thing's massive. Um, right. And so I'm going to try and make about 10 gallons of it. And then in December, we're going to brew a full batch of Falcon's Claws, and we're going to aim for 20 gallons of it. And that's going to be about 140 pounds of grain. So let's let's talk about this yeast. Um, what is it that makes it so special? Uh, I mean, is there anything other than this is the yeast that Herleman used? Well, that's part of it, but the real thing about it is the alcohol tolerance. 
So, uh-huh. I mean, you can imagine, start and think about like all your yeast pitching rates that you ever see. And right. we all know that, okay, the stuff that we get from White Labs, Y-Yeast, and our other yeast suppliers are typically pretty good for a standard gravity batch. Um, I think they usually claim about 1060, 1065. Uh, I usually tend tend to go anything under 1045 I'm okay with. Everything else gets a starter. Right. Um, And, of course, those pitching rate numbers get even worse when you start dealing with loggers. And they get worse when you're dealing with stronger beers. So here we're talking about basically the strongest lager possible, which means that we need all the yeast in the universe. So this particular yeast does a really, really good job of fermenting out, fermenting out in a mega sugar environment. It's a hearty yeast. Yeah, you really can't kill this stuff. And it produces um, just a little bit of esters, but no uh, fusels, uh, no, no harsh phenols. It just produces a like a malt bomb of a beer with an incredible booze backing to it. Wow. And so... now. One thing, one thing you weren't aware of when you went through all this is that there's actually a dry version of it available. Indeed, yeah. Uh, Safflogger S189. That is the one, and it is a wonderful yeast. I have used it many times uh, to make things like, uh, like uh, Bach, like uh, Maybach. Uh, it, it, it's a great yeast for the maltier lagers, which is exactly what you're going for. Yeah, and I figured that that would be... Dead on, because, I mean, in the past when I've used this yeast, when I wasn't making Falcon's Claws, or when I was making the starter beers for Falcon Claws, uh, I, almost always it's been a Bach of some variety. I think the beers that it produces taste really wonderful and really incredibly malt-forward and malt-rich. Right. So, I, I like the yeast strain to begin with. Uh, it wouldn't be normally my first choice for making a lager. That's usually like the Iinger strains, like White Labs 833 German Bach, which is one of my favorite things ever. But it makes really good beers, and so I'm really happy to to have gotten it. Now, when I talked to Neva and I asked, I, I asked, okay, so why can't I find this in any stores? Uh, basically, this is now kind of a specialty order product. So you can either contact White Labs, or you can have your homebrew store contact White Labs, and they'll be able to get their hands on it. So they do have pure pitch packages available. Of this stuff. And by the way, saying that on a microphone is hard. Yeah, that's right, man. Um, And of course, then there is the S189 alternative, which is pretty much readily available almost everywhere these days. Yeah. And so what we're going to do for this batch is uh, three portions of it are going to get the zero clogger yeast. And then one portion will get the S189 so that we can do a comparison between the two. Right. You know what? And I've even used S189 for making a German pills, and it works very respectably even for that. Although, like we were saying, it does shine in the maltier things. Yeah. And, you know, one other thing I got out of Neva, and I swear I'm giving you the amount of information I have on it. I'm not trying to be a tease. Right. But she did tell me that in the upcoming year, White Labs is going to have a whole new set of programs available for uh, getting specialty yeast strains out. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. No, no further details, just whispers <laughs> on the wind that something is coming. Really? And the second that we know, we'll let you know. All righty, we're going to shut things down here in the brewery at this point, and we will be moving on over 
to the lounge to check out some interviews that we did on our recent trip to Portland. So stick around, listen to some music, and we will be right back. Welcome to the lounge. We're in the comfy chairs, smoking jackets on, beer at hand. Uh, My jacket isn't smoking. Well, that's because you're not hot enough. All right. Okay. <laughs> hey, that was good. <laughs> Hi, dorky radio humor. <laughs> all right. So if you pay attention at all to the show or to our feeds, you know that we were just in Portland, Oregon and Vancouver, Washington a couple of weeks back for our good friend uh, Brewcraft USA's Retailer Conference. And while we were there, of course, no trip is complete without Danny and I running around and interviewing people. And fortunately, we have lots of friends in Portland. And we start we started our day with Larry, who you heard uh, during episode 26. So our third stop of our Portland trip was to the Commons Brewery, uh, which is this big, glorious space. It's actually their second space. And they have the two brew systems there. They have a big, glorious new brew system that is dedicated to producing all their ales there. But right up in the front, right to the left, as you walk in the door, the tiny little space, that, uh, or the tiny little system that they started with. And you're just kind of sitting there being all cute. Uh, and just as a nice little showpiece. But we were in the middle of this space, uh, sitting down with Sean Burke. And we were high up above everybody in their upper loft area. Uh, and But you can tell the, the room itself is big and boomy and loud and, and raucous with a lot of fun going on. And really, this brewery is right up my alley, not because, oh, you know, weird, but because of Saison. They had a lot of farmhouse-inspired uh, beers. They also had a lot of lagers. They had a, just a, a really interesting swath of things. And not a lot of things that I think people would normally think of as being like too weird for school. Yeah, and w one of the things that really blew me away was their uh, their brewing system, where uh, pretty much the mash ton doubles as the boil kettle. Uh, I, I know that right that, that it was that's it was a Belgian style system, yeah, right? Which you don't see around here very often. No, yeah, we're used to is sort of the combi ton type thing where. You know, your HLT sits below your mash tun, and the mash tun is also your larder tun, and it rolls out, it rolls out to a boil kettle. Uh, in this case, yeah, they, they have the old-fashioned European system where, you know, you mash and you boil in the exact same kettle, and you water separately. Right, right. And so very, very cool to see a sort of traditionally appropriate system for their styles that they focus on. Even if you don't necessarily always believe that that's a, a necessary component to recreate, hey, they they but, do so. More power to them, indeed. And you know, I mean, we sat we sat down with Sean, and we had a, a whole bevy of beers in front of us, and I think we just had a really great time talking and learning some really interesting things about their take on brewery. Yeah, and uh, definitely we will post uh, pictures of our taster trays on the website because uh, the beers kind of just went on forever, huh? Yeah, it was a, a basically a yard of beer. Yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, as always in these interviews, uh, I was driving, so uh, they tasted while I was being the good boy. 
So uh, kick back, grab yourself a beer, and uh, let's listen to the conversation with Sean Burke from Commons Brewery in uh, Portland, Oregon. All right, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, brewers and beer drinkers. We are currently sitting here in the middle of our great Portland exodus, uh, and we are sitting at the Commons Brew House. And I am sitting here with uh, uh, Sean Burke, and I've got Denny, and we also have our good friend Larry, who uh, you may or may not have heard of uh, previously, depending upon the order that we put these interviews in. Because we who haven't knows? shown him out of the car yet. I know, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, all right, hey, Sean, thank you for having us here at the brewery. Yeah, thanks for coming down. All right, so uh, real quick, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience, uh, give a little bit of your biographical background, like how you got into beer and how you ended up here. Perfect. Uh, okay, my name's Sean. Uh, I'm the head brewer here. Uh, at the Commons Brewery, and I started my path looks like most people's <laughs> in the uh, craft brewing world, where I was an avid home brewer for whew, a long time. Kind of, kind of came in and out of it a bit. You know, I, I started. You've got Denny and I here. Who exactly. About, like so, define a long time. Uh, about fourteen years. Okay, so that is a long time. Uh, that is a good long time. I, at the age of nineteen, went. Wait, I can make beer. Okay. Screw getting somebody to buy it for <laughs> exactly. me. Exactly. And so, you know, and I nervously went into the homebrew shop where I was living, and he said, yeah, you can buy all the ingredients. I, you just, you know, legally can't drink it. And I said, okay. I'm just going to make it. I think legally you're not, uh, you're allowed to do everything up to the point of adding the yeast. Yes, there you go. So, yeah. so I was a, uh, an avid wort maker. <laughs> but uh, I don't know how this yeast ended up there. Exactly, exactly. But, wow. Uh, but yeah, then I, I just basically, you know, got to the point where it was becoming pretty ridiculous what my setup was looking like, and and my wife wanted the laundry room back and the garage and and all these things, and was tired of the kitchen looking the way it did, and, and so uh, I and I also was at a good point in my life where I kind of wanted a career change, so I enrolled in the Siebel Master Brewer program and uh, went away, did that. Um, Chicago and Munich, and spent a bunch of time in Europe, traveling throughout and, and so tasting beer. And can I can I ask what were you doing that you decided that you needed a career change away from? Uh, I was making cabinets and bookshelves for Powell's Books. So yeah, a, good, old, good old Portland Powell's. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I ended up working there. I was there for about eleven years, and uh, you know I worked in the store as well earlier on but uh well i was gonna say given the number of books that pals has i'm not surprised that we need continuous and that's and that's exactly it so we would we would build bookshelves or like the display stands and all this um it was a pretty interesting job but i always felt like i was just building a box and you know i mean it was great to be around all the books i do miss that aspect of it but i don't know i just i felt like i wanted a little bit more creative outlet than i mean you know, you can argue that making stuff with your hands, like out of wood, is is a creative outlet. But mm-hmm. again, you're always sort of building a box, and so. Well, uh, it, it sounds like you went from a profession where you're building things with your hands to a plan. Yep. Very rigid plan. That's exactly. And now you've moved into a field where you're building things still with your hands, but the plan's a little more amorphous. That's that's you've nailed it on the head, and and I find them to be very similar jobs you know still production of, of mm-hmm. things and, and so it's it's a lot of logistics <laughs> well and i think you may be like one of the few people i've met in the brewing industry that moved from a handicraft yeah. into this is a handicraft <laughs> which That's, is interesting because it, normally i typically i think of 
a lot of brewers coming from sort of that virtual, like I'm a computer guy, like yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, but this is the first time I think, like, because I always think it's it, part of the impulse is I want to satisfy that mental need to do something physical and yeah. create. Yeah. But you already had that, and now you went in a different direction with it. So that's that's, kinda, that's true, and it, I mean, it's just kind of how I am. I'm I'm definitely a uh, I still do a lot of woodworking at home, and, and um, but I, I always like to say I'm actually one of the few people that I know in the industry that actually traded up, basically. So you know, I know a lot of people that left perfectly good jobs to become brewers or work in the industry, and <laughs> you know, I've 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 trained a doctor how to brew here. He was he was one of our interns once, and I went. Why do you want to stop being a doctor? <laughs> that that pay scale's got to be pretty good. But, <laughs> but I mean, I understand the passion for it too. So, but. so sometimes it's all about you know what's going to make you happy. That's exactly. It. But but for me, it was it was honestly I I mean I liked my old job, but I like this one a lot better. <laughs> and, and you were saying that this is about five years ago that you did this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So and I was actually incredibly for, fortunate enough to be able to come out of brewing school pretty much straight into this job. So. Uh, so really, really lucky on that front. Now, I know the area that we're sitting in right now, we're way up high above a bunch of people drinking beer in a fairly sizable location. Mm -hmm. and this is the second location for Commons. This is technically the, or is it the third. third. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, we went so, from super small to exactly, small exactly. to now so, this. So about 2010, uh, Brewery was founded, our founder, Mike, Mike Wright. Uh, he was one of the first people to actually get legally... Uh, licensed to brew in his garage, so he had a, uh, a one-barrel system. Uh, he did it kind of as a on a whim to see if the government would let him, and they did. <laughs> ah, you bastards here yeah. in Oregon. Yeah. And then uh, so he said, okay, did that for a while, and went, well, that's not a very good business plan. So we got a seven-barrel system. We did that, and that's when I started working for him. And we did that for a while, and we said, well, that's not working. This is we're just constantly brewing. Uh, so. And we were in a pretty small space. Uh, this was a couple years ago, and we we really knew that we needed to expand. And but we were, the goal never really was to be a very large brewery. So uh, we kind of wanted to find a home and call it good, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so the building we're in now, ten thousand square foot building with a great location and. Well, you have all this great exposed wood above us, and yeah, we well, we did a lot of work on this building. This was a uh, that was all painted white, and there were beams that went across and, and decking up here, and so <laughs> sandblasted. Well, we didn't actually sand; we had a company do it. Yeah. But, uh, re reclaimed a lot of the wood, and so a lot of the bar downstairs is I built. Former decking. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, I built all the cabinetry downstairs in my garage. No, so, so in other words, you never really left cabinet making. You nope. just turned it into something else. Exactly, exactly. So now so, I, I did want to touch on one thing. Like you talked about, like it, starting in the garage, mm -hmm. and we we all sort of had a, an instantaneous reaction to it. But I mean, if you go and you look in like uh, Belgium, for yeah. instance, yeah, where Belgium we think of like all this great uh, great variety of beers. One of the big reasons why Belgium has a great variety of beers is. Because, yeah, you have a lot of garage breweries. Yeah, yeah It's like some dude built a shed in his backyard that's, that he's brewing yeah, and precise, legally precise. sold. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's that's that's a huge influence where Mike got it. And yeah, the t his wife at the time, uh, they, they've since split, but uh, was from Belgium <laughs> as well. Huh. So it was a big influence on us, too. But, uh, no, I mean, I think it's 
for all, a lot of us. That's where we kind of started. Where we started in the kitchen, moved to the garage kind of scenario. Yeah. That's definitely what happened to me. And uh, uh, I don't know. There's we like to try to still hold on to a little bit of that garage aspect. You know, just being you know small batch, whether it's that or. Well, or just a little bit more experimental, not relying so heavy on production. What's your annual out? Ooh, it's hard to say that right now. <laughs> well, I, I only say that because it's been, you know, it's up been down, this up down. Uh, up, down, up, down, purely because of when we moved into this place, uh, we were shut down. So we didn't have, we were, unfortunately, we couldn't shut down or, you know, continue to brew on the old system while this one, well, we were, were doing that, sorry. You, 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 couldn't, you couldn't transition clean. This is exactly it. So we had to actually shut down production for a few months and while everything was still getting plugged in. So that being said, I'm relatively certain that we'll do about 2,500 barrels this year. Nice. So, and that's, well, we have a lot of room for growth too, which is nice. Well, I mean, it leaves a lot of room for growth, but it also leaves you guys in that, very much in that comfortable space of, Look, we're making a lot of beer. We're having fun with it, but we're not—we're not dealing with the day-to-day -day demands of I have to brew, uh, brew out like you know a whole three series of the urban farmhouse. That's exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's that's definitely what we make the most of. That's what sells the most. Uh, but we're also really fortunate. It's very easy to make. It's um, <laughs> delicious. That, beer, thank you. Thank See, you. I, and and I argue all the time. I think people overthink how hard you have to work at that saison. Yeah. That's my, I, I agree. <laughs> um, and, I mean, truthfully, like, this whole thing, I think, is very much where if, if I were to ever be dumb enough to go for a brewery, <laughs> this is very much in that range of what I'd want because right. the, uh, I don't need to be the big guys or even the big guys in the craft world. Mm -hmm. I would just want to have a space where I can play. Yeah, and that's... And you guys, you guys seem like you've reached a place where you're big enough to sustain, yep. as opposed to the garage, yep. and you're still small enough that you can be nimble enough to play. That's exactly it, yep, yep. That's a great way to describe it. So where do you market? Just in the Portland area? Is it available outside of here? It is available outside of here. Uh, we send some to California, uh, Washington State, mostly Seattle area. Where uh, in California? All of California. This is, uh, we don't send them much, so. Uh, it's, uh, it's It's, but that being said, I think we're gonna start increasing that. So we've mostly been sending bottles down and mm -hmm. I think we're gonna start increasing with more draft. Uh, just, you know, trying to, trying to boost that one currently. Uh, we also do Vancouver, BC. Um, and then every once in a while, it's that's that's pretty much of it, the bulk of it. But then we've sent beer to all sorts of different right. places. And, oh, and look, it goes over here for this festival. Exactly, we got a post in that state right. to get in there. And we were doing New York City for a while, and that 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 sort of fell off a little bit, but might come back. Um, and it's fun because well, we would get people that would come from New York and say, "Oh, I had your beer at the Whole Foods <laughs> in, in Brooklyn," you know. Cool. cool. All right. So we've left off one of my favorite questions so far. Okay. Um, what is your favorite curse word? Say again, sorry. What is your favorite curse word? My favorite curse word? Oh, boy. I've never been asked that question. Um, I don't know. He's stunned. Yeah, I know. That's What's the most common? Yeah, I mean. I, I, yeah, favorite. That, that's, there's so many layers to that. What's uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, nice. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, huh. uh, Fiddlesticks. I, I think I like that one the best. <laughs> that matches That's what I said earlier one. about making yeah. up ones. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, that's technically a curse. Oh, or, yeah. It is. Oh, yeah, man. I, I always think favorite curse word is, like, what is the one that you say that, like, in the moment gives you the most satisfaction, right? You know, so. Oh, my God damn it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the, 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 and we were talking earlier about how that's when my wife knows I'm actually seriously yeah. mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if if you're going from purely the, just the term fiddlesticks, that's it's it's silly. So it sort of you know takes some of the air out yeah, of it. That's I guess, a so. that's a really good it. point, man. Yeah. I, I can see that that one's going to work its way into our lexicon. Uh, excellent. Right. So here's the tricky one for brewers: omitting the word balance. Uh huh. Describe your brewing philosophy. Uh. Balanced. Larry tried that too. Very much try to do uh, lower alcohol and try to do lower alcohol well. Mm -hmm. um, I. It's hard because one of the key words I can't say. Exactly. Uh, That's why we ask it. Fiddlesticks. Uh, <laughs> simple. I think that's uh, that's definitely a focus of, of not trying to not trying to muddle things, mm -hmm. uh, trying to make them very uh, user friendly, mm -hmm. but yet intrigue people at the same time. Um, I think another word would be hop light. If that's that's tech, mm -hmm. I, that's two words, but well, uh, unless you're talking about Greek armored formations, right? Exactly, exactly. So. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not an approach that, that we take. You know, we, we've sort of, it's, it's not to say we won't do that ever or anything, mm -hmm. but we just have, we've never really gone down the road of, you know, the big, big hot bombs. And we like the beers and everything. It's just basically just trying to stand out and be a little bit different. And, uh, well, I was going to say, I mean, we have a flight of 12 beers in front mm -hmm. of us, which, uh, by the way, is sort of terrifying, <laughs> but awesome. I love, uh, that's, again, the reason why I love the size that you guys are at is that you have, the beers that you're super polished at, like your urban farmhouse, uh -huh. all the way down into like some very experimental type things that you're still playing around exactly, with. Exactly, exactly. Um, and what I've been noticing is, that, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're not in any of this range in anywhere where it's like, oh my God, that's way too much alcohol, yeah. or like these are big booze bombs. Right. You're, I mean, all of these, I think, are somewhere between, I mean, about three and a half on the low side, and I think seven, seven and a half on the high side. Maybe. I. Yeah, it's it's it, it, it's that's definitely our. Range. It's roughly. I mean, there's nothing in the tens. There's nothing above that. I mean, there's, yeah, there's nothing like exactly. that's going to destroy you. But we do make beers that that are that do have that. Just not well, all the time. That's that's. Well, I like to brew very seasonally, honestly. That's good. Seasonal is good. But what I'm noticing is, I, the other thing is, the the beer color that we have in front of us. <laughs> I mean, is not. Hugely varied, right? No, you don't no, have. No, no. I mean, you have some super pale beers, but you also don't have like stouts. Although I know you said you have some yeah. darkish wort. I'm always things late on the, these things. In, in the in the ton, but we were actually able to figure out. I, I just want to let you know I'm taking a look here at the tap list. It ranges from 4.1 percent up to 5.9. There you go. There, it's even narrower than so yeah. the other. We also make a beer that's that I was aiming for 2.5%, but we got 2.8 on it. Ah. So, and it's called micro beer. It's, it's and, I call it the brewer's beer. Well, and, and, and how disappointed do you feel by the fact that you missed your target? Oh, not, not, I, under three, <laughs> under three was good, so. Uh. But, I mean, you know, we have, I mean, here a relatively narrow color range. Sure, sure. But, 
now having gone through all of these, I'm still seeing way radical differences in terms of the flavor that we go all the way from, you know, sort of this very crisp, you know, fruity sort of uh, farmhouse ale on mm -hmm. one side, all the way down the other side, you've got an experimental saison. Exactly. But in the middle, you've got a really nice pills. We've got a smoky beer in here. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, just some, you know, really interesting different things. Some fests. We got you're embracing your seasonal side. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so now, given that you, that we see this range here, uh -huh. what is uh, uh, what is the most unusual beery thing that you've made? Oh boy, <sighs> we've done some kind of interesting things, I guess. Uh, I think last year we did a beer called Tinderbox. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, we, we did it for this event called Beers Made by Walking. So uh, oh, yeah. it's, it's essentially you, you go on a hike and you, uh, you're, you're influenced by your surroundings. So place-based mm -hmm. place in, in uh, and we did it in, in Portland. We have a very large forested park called Forest Park. Uh, <laughs> and they had had the first, uh, first wildfire that, there. That that's had. very creative. Yeah, it's park, interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. a pretty huge park. Um, and I think, yeah, it's like one of the biggest, I don't I can't quote the stat, but uh, they had had a wildfire there. And so we did a, a beer influenced by the wildfire. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we wanted to get an element of the smoke in there, but also some heat. And so we, we used uh, Lapsong tea, like, which is Oh, to get that nice smoke, yeah. Yeah, and then we also used uh, habaneros on it. So it actually was, but it was also oh. with the farmhouse yeast base. So, so just the, the habanero to get exactly. heat, 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 the fire. But yeah. but it also, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm one of these weird people that lo loves chili beers when they're made right, <laughs> but they're rarely ever made right. No, no, no I shouldn't say that. I, I don't want to knock on too many people. I've had at least two chili beers yeah. in the past that I've liked. Yeah. But yeah, it is still a relatively rare find. So I, I'm of the camp that I like to take the a lot of the heat out. I mean, the heat's good, but I, I like the warming. Because yeah. you have to think about it in a beer. Beer is something that you want to be able to go back to, go back to. And if it's too spicy, you know, to the average person, they're not going to want to drink more than one. So. Can I see the list? I think eating spicy food is, which I love, is way different than drinking spicy beer. Because... Completely it affects me totally different, and I would 100% agree with you. And if, and if I can interject, one of my favorite, well, I highly enjoyed it, was, and I can't remember the, the full name of it, but it was Buddha's something, Buddha's hand or Buddha's arm, oh, yeah, Buddha's yeah, yeah. fist. Oh, the, yeah, the weird citron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My point is, that was actually a real, well, it's a very unique looking ingredient, but it was a very uh, interesting, yeah, yeah, and now I've seen it made by how many people since then, but... Uh, uh, fantastic. fantastic. Yeah, and, and, and if I may interject, one thing that you guys asked me earlier is recommendations or talk, talking about. One thing that's amazing about the Commons Brewery, and I love it that their name is The Commons, they're so simple but amazing. Like, that's, that's a lot of home brewers like to use 13 different malts or something. And that's. Look at, I'll bet you these guys probably have a handful of malts of the common malts in all these, and they have to order a few bags of this or that just to make what you see here in front of you. And I, I yet they taste so uniquely different. And that's the amazing thing. And it's, it's, it's business sense-wise, it's, it's, it's very smart. But yeah, I and mean, you keep your malt bills down, you keep your grain, your grain costs down. I mean, look, I've, I have my whole brewing on the lens thing where mm -hmm. I talk about that sort of thing where 
I, I used to be super overcomplicated about and nine malts and five mm -hmm. hops and this, that, and the other. And quickly figured out that the beers I really liked were the simpler ones I were doing. And, and a lot of the Commons beers that we have here in front of us are in that same vein where yeah. they're, you know, a small amount of malts, each with a purpose, small amount of hops. I mean, I wouldn't say that any of your beers right now are super hop forward in terms of the ones that we no, have. No, no, no. Um, but also really giving space for yeast to play. Yeah. And now given the fact that I am a Saison farmhouse guy, uh -huh. that makes perfect sense, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, you think about the style, the style is yeast-driven. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it may be simple in terms of the number of ingredients, but it's very complex yeah. in terms yeah. of flavor. I mean, yeah. the, the urban farmhouse, I just love it because you just get layers of flavor one after the other when you drink it. Which, well, is, which is great because it is a very, it is a simple yeah. beer. I mean, it's it's Pilsner malt base and malted rye, and that's it. Well, rye, no it, wonder I love it. Well, I was going to say, like, you, you got your, your peppercorn beer and your local honey beer here. Yeah, yeah. And, and all of these are doing a really great job of just kind of popping out that little note on that one ingredient to give yeah. you a chance. Right? That, you know, it's funny. Going back to the word that I wasn't supposed to use, it's it's balance. I mean, we strive so hard for balance. Of, I think it's good to, to put an ingredient up front when it needs to be up front. But I don't know. I like I like the layers. See, but here, here's what I'd be different about it. I think a lot of what you show in these mm -hmm. beers, it's not balance, mm -hmm. it's expression. Sure, that's, I'll take that. And Ooh, that's, that's, that's very literal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, but again, I mean, like, uh, particularly like looking down here at the last three beers that we have in the flight, where we have a honey beer, uh, a peppercorn beer, a pink peppercorn, mm -hmm. a pink peppercorn beer, and uh, then one with experimental hops. All three of these, I mean, two of them look very, very similar to each other. But all three of them, the main thing that you get out of it, the, the big difference, you still get that same sort of farmhousey yeast character mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. But then what you really get is you get that singular expression of that particular ingredient. So like with the local honey beer, that honey yeah. comes forward. The peppercorn beer, as long as you know what pink peppercorns taste like, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. it's pepper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that gives you a chance to have your hops also shine for it sure, as well sure, sure. in this other one. Yeah. So, I would say that you could say balance in terms of like you know not wanting to, not wanting to be super aggressive, but what I think you're doing superbly here is doing an expression of ingredients. Well, thank you. That's, you know. I, mean, I just want to say we have twelve beers here, <laughs> and they are all stunning, man. <laughs> Thanks. There is not even. I mean, I couldn't pick a favorite because they're all so delicious. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, and it, really quick, going back to the, the, the malt thing, I, it's, it's sort of a funny driver here. I don't like having open bags of malt because <laughs> they're just going bad at that point, you know? And so We have experiments that prove that that is incorrect. But okay. That's the well, it's, it's, it's going not the way I want yeah, it to. Yeah, right. Uh, and I just don't want them sitting around. They're just taking up space. So I really try to design things. So we're all bag malt at this brewery. Yep. So uh, we try to design things in full bags or half bags. Uh, and Have you got a favorite malt? You know, we've been using this uh, Wireman Barca Pilsner. Oh, uh, man, that's that so is good. So it's, good. It's in all of our lagers here. It is it is a fantastic malt. It has and, such that's a big flavor. That's in the Hellas. So both the Pilsner and the Hellas are 100%. They're really that, nice. Um, 
it's it's in the Oktoberfest and the Raukhaus as well. So. That's an amazing. Yeah. I, that's, that's a fantastic Oktoberfest. Thank you. Thanks. What, what I, I think, think it is, it's uniquely different. different. And I'll tell you, if anybody that knows me, I will they say, do you like or do you not like Oktoberfest? It all depends on who makes it, mm -hmm. and, and I'll tell you why. There are some of them that, to me, there's too much caramel malt. Oh yeah. Well, to me, it's just I don't enjoy that flavor, and so it's undrinkable. You have one of the most highly drinkable Oktoberfest beers, and it's on the lighter side, which I, I actually enjoy and love. This one's bready. It's toasty. Yeah. It's got it's got that sort of deep baked flavor yeah, sure. like I don't know a better way to put it except for to say bread but it's baked and it's, it's, not, not bread. it's not too sweet yeah, which no. is what you get into a lot of times with but, beers that are malt but it's also right. it's yeah, also very much sweet. in the sort of traditional Oktoberfest model of being that slightly orangish beer as opposed to the modern Oktoberfest beer if you actually go over to Oktoberfest where they're serving you basically beer, right. like a yeah a strong Hellas you know exactly. like, whatever this um, is in, inspired by Ironer that's that was the yeah. wasn't trying to copy them by but, any means, but inspired. Hey, hey, right. there, there are worse inspirations to have. Um, <laughs> all right, so uh, we asked most unusual beery thing, right? No. All right, so uh, most unusual beery thing that you've done. A long time ago. <laughs> well, no, within the... Back uh, when I was in college yeah, and I exactly. was a younger man. <laughs> a couple years ago, we uh, we really started to play around with kettle souring really just early on. And uh, I was sitting there eating breakfast and I went, this yogurt has lactobacillus in it. And so <laughs> we, uh, we attempted to sour, kettle sour with yogurt and it worked. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't do that anymore, just mostly because it's not as good as the, the house lacto strain that we use. But uh, but to be fair, a lot of homebrewers do use Oh yeah, no, uh, yogurt. Become it's, 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 be, it's become thing. a thing, which yeah. is really fascinating. But I You it was, did it before it was a thing. I, I think maybe actually, I mean I know people had done it before. I'm not trying to claim it. Was it was published in a national beer uh, article. Yeah. I don't I don't know which one it was, but I remember reading that actually. Yeah. And it was interesting because you guys were kind of one of the first ones who did it. Yeah. And then it became a thing. It, it's true. Um, it, and, and it's kind of one of those things that it's, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm proud of that either because it's, it, in, in the sense, it became almost a curse because people were going, how much yogurt do you use? We're going, we tried it once on one beer, you know, and it, and it worked. And we went, okay, well, that's, and it was a popular beer, you know, which is silly because we don't make it anymore, mostly because I don't want to deal with the yogurt. And, yeah, right. And again, we have a house lactoculture that I like much better, so. Uh, I was going to say, I mean, once you get your things established you don't have to go with this and that's yeah and that's that's precisely it. yeah it's, it's on to do a new fun experience yeah right right yeah. You've, you've done that now time precisely. to do something else. precisely yeah exactly that, that's drew's theory for sure i look i mean you you know me i'm super crazy pants like i've done this i'm gonna go do something fluffer else fluffer nutter just let me say fluffer nutter beer yeah let me just say back to you mushroom beers okay, multiple okay. mushroom beers <laughs> all right. I, I, I like making mushroom beers too yeah. there see there's, 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 mushroom mushroom beers. Beers. there's also nothing wrong with so fluffer nutter beer no, but she gives me crap over <laughs> fluffer nutter beer <laughs> yeah you know she doesn't give me crap over clam chowder saison which she was involved in <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, I, i'll bet you a clam chowder saison will never be brewed here no uh, our founder is <laughs> deathly allergic to, to uh, any sort of shellfish. So. There you go. Yeah. Oh, see, there you go. Denny wins the bet just out of default biology. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, 
So uh, let me ask you, what common wisdom brewing practice do you think is wrong? Wow. Um, <laughs> common brewing wisdom. Uh, people that say that you don't have to step mash or do a decoction because of modern malts. That's us. Yeah. <laughs> I, I uh, actually thought, thought you were going to go somewhere else with that. Now, let me explain. Yeah. You don't have to, but why not? Like, you can do it, and you can create very unique, interesting beers by doing those processes. Agreed, you don't have to, but why limit yourself? Right. So so even though you don't have to, there are advantages you sure, found to doing absolutely, it. yeah. Yeah. And what so, are those advantages? What what are the depend, reasons you do depending it? Depending on the the steps and the process. So, uh, for example, turbid mashing. We'll go with that. Yeah. Uh, you don't you don't have to do that, and you'll get a perfectly good beer on the other end of it. But by doing it, you've created a very complex work profile for multiple microorganisms to break down over a long well, period of time. But I would argue that that's a reason to do it because. Yeah, your your general straightforward single infusion mash is going to get rid of all your starch. Sure. Which your additional critters can feed on. Sure. So I would say that you actually have a reason to do that as opposed to... You can also add back starch, though. You could. And, and there are lots of people who do flour. Sure, sure. So you were telling us about this very unique brew house that you designed for the way you want to brew. So why don't sure. you describe that to the people? Sure. So, I mean, it's it's essentially based off of Casper uh, uh, Scholl's, which is a German uh, producer in Bamberg. Um, so it's a mash mixer and a kettle in one, a separate louder tone, separate whirlpool, and then space for a, a kettle down the road if we need to. Uh, which which is a very traditional European style. Yeah, of... exactly. So, so three to four vessel, uh, a lot of times, one of the reasons why this is a little bit unique is that the there's no uh, steam jacket on the louder tongue. So if you're going to do any step or any sort of mash heating that happens in the mixer, and then you move the mash over to the louder tongue. Or, or you move the mash away, heat something left, and then move that back. So you're almost, if you're doing any sort of step mash, you're almost automatically into the decoction. To a degree. I mean, you're not you're not actually boiling well, anything, but yeah, yeah. But, yeah so but you're doing direct heating of the malt. Direct with, heating, yeah, correct. And uh, aeration via trans, uh, yeah, transfer. Yeah, aeration, aeration, and we're also running a uh, the mixer itself, so mm -hmm. big paddle in there. Uh, one of the advantages to that whole setup is that it saved us a lot of money only having to steam jacket one vessel. So because it's the kettle as well. Mm -hmm. So so you basically you you know you move your entire mash over spray it out real quick return you know while you're warloffing return right back with you know first runnings basically so uh within that we're not uh bound to that either because we're able to take our hydrator move it over to the louder ton and just go straight into the louder ton single infusion mash like like you would on a you know two vessel combo system something like that is that uh, like what you do like through session ipa you do the single infusion or uh, is that a step mash? we actually don't make a session ipa oh i thought i saw one no on that's quite side. all right it's uh it's, it's just there's a session be, hoppy session beer okay uh, uh it's fermented with the farmhouse yeast so oh, I, mean, cool. I don't we, <laughs> i haven't yeah, gotten that far very very uh i don't know un un Unidentified, you know, it's, yeah, it's hard well, hard to put a stamp on. I was going to say it, it doesn't really feel like a farmhousey type ale. No, and that's it, and that's uh, why we're not really advertising it as yeah. that. Uh, we're really just trying to put, you know, 
hey, put some hops into a beer that, that I think you know, would people well, will like. I like. I mean, Denny and I routinely, repeatedly push the idea of, hey, you know what everybody needs to do? Session beers. Yep. But flavorful session beers. Yeah. Right? Oh, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, it's, it's hard to get flavor into a low alcohol beer. It's so true. Uh, it is. It no. Is, it is for no. me. No. That's because you're a moron. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> No, I mean, I don't think it's that hard to get flavor into a session beer. It's hard to get flavor into a session beer along the way that a lot of American brewers think of getting flavor into a session beer. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah, okay. It's, it's harder, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, think with hoppy beers, I think that's that's 100% true because you just don't have alcohol. Yeah. But, I mean, but with hoppy beers, I think a lot what a lot of people need to do is they need to focus on, okay, what allows you to get a hoppy? Sure. Yeah, it's that residual malt sweetness. All right, so give some, you know, give some something else. You know, boost. Uh, you know, give that boost to it to do yep, it. Yep. But I think you have so many people sort of kind of mindlessly going, "Oh, I'm going to take my IPA recipe and just subtract out the malt yeah. from it." Yeah. yeah. And try and do something session-wise. And uh, but again, I think the biggest challenge with session beers is always about the malt character, because you look at like the number of people who have problems doing bitters, doing ESBs. Super traditional beers that have been done forever in a damn day, and their biggest problem still here is just getting the malt character behind the hop to make it interesting. I agree with that. So, which, which is why my wife refers to mine as tasting like water. It's true. <laughs> so, all right, uh, let's see. Let's do a couple of quick ingredient questions. Yep. Okay, yeah. What's your favorite malt? Uh, I think it's that Wireman Barca Pills. Wireman Barca Pills? Not a bad one, particularly for the world that you're in. What's your favorite hop? Oh boy. Uh, I'm a big fan of Willamette, to tell you the truth. Right, I know man. it's I know it's a kind of crazy. I'm, I'm a native Oregonian, so yeah. there's there's a little how many blocks away are yeah, we from exactly, the, uh, exactly. the Willamette? Uh, I just love that hop. I think in in it, it has so many beautiful uses. I've, I've been rediscovering my love oh, of Willamette. You know, I've, I've burned out on it oh, for I mean, a long yeah, time. Exactly. And now it's like I'm getting back into using it again. More. Yeah. It's like, hey, this doesn't suck. It's, it's totally not sexy, but I, it's, it's Willamette. Well, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm really... That's right. Well, and I was going to say, I'm really curious to see what we get out of people now coming back to maybe... I mean, even with all the new hop varieties that are coming out of the market, like what we'll actually see as people start to re- rediscover or recover yeah. uh, some of the older, like American noble yeah. hops, like Willamette and the CDM. other CDM, I love that hop. CDM, yeah. Mount Hood. Yeah. All right. Um, so, what is something that you wish that more people would uh, explore or drink? Loggers. Yes. <laughs> See, this is the thing. So many brewers, yes. loggers. Yes. All right. Uh, any other brewing thoughts that uh, that you haven't shared so far? Uh, like things that people should be aware about. Things that people should think about. Loggers. <laughs> yeah, I'm such a huge fan of loggers. Me too. We, 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 you know, we currently have four going on our board right now, which is, I'm, I'm surprised that we're actually well, able to, but. Uh, well, but, uh, so, uh, but how do uh, how do you how do you balance 
to use the forbidden yeah, term. Sure. How do you use, how do you balance loggers up against the sort of panoply of farmhouses that you have that are like almost sort of the diametric opposite of the logger? I think that's why I love it. I think that's why I love our offering right there. Is that that you know they're at both ends of the spectrum. You know, uh, there's there's room for experiment, but then you know strict tradition or whatever you know this is how, the way this beer has been made this is why it tastes good and well so i was gonna say because i mean i think in, in front of us like i said we have 12 beers mm-hmm. and what we have four four loggers yeah. and eight things that are mostly around the farmhouse correct bent. correct yeah and so do you ever run any, into any challenges with that sort of blend Eh, mostly people that just want an IPA. <laughs> that's that's our well, biggest. Well, I, I remember we were downstairs and, yeah. and we were talking about this before. Like, some, like, what do people what do people say when they or what do you say to people when they come in? Hey, you got an IPA? Uh, we usually just hand them the the session hoppy beer uh, and just say try this, you know, because I think people are just ordering something that's familiar. It's just you know it's a name that that they see everywhere, and that's, I mean it's not to put it down. No. Again, I love IPAs too, but uh, but. No, but there is that weird thing where IPA has suddenly become so dominant it's, in like the past re- five years. It's, yeah, like, it's replaced the "Can I have a beer?" You know, like yeah. that's it. Just like you know, give me your IPA. You know. Right, so. Final question. All right, final question, uh, sir. Uh, what non-beer thing are you obsessed by or obsessed with? Fly fishing. Oh, cool. There's an there's an Oregon answer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I grew up on the Mackenzie River, basically. So. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Right so on. It's in my blood. Suddenly, suddenly, I feel like I'm in the picture with Brad Pitt. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> That's uh, farther south. Anthony That's on the road. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I believe he has a secret spot that he does not share with anybody, I believe. I have a lot of them, yeah. Uh, well, I was gonna, wait, does any, does any serious fisherman not have secret spots? Sure. So, can you, can you tell us what's so special about your secret spots? Nah, that's a secret. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I've heard you have to blindfold you to take you there, just so you don't know how to get there. I have a I have a big fascination with getting into places that are not easy to get into, because I mean one of my one of the loves of fly fishing is not necessarily just the fishing itself, it's that uh, being away from people. Mm-hmm. You know, not that I'm some some misanthrope that just needs to. No, be. that's my job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, no, it's just a you know. We're surrounded by people at all times. It's nice to not, and nature's a beautiful thing. So, so I find that a little bit harder you work, you know, whether it's traverse some canyon wall or, or crawl down some stream to get to the bigger river, it's almost always rewarded on the other end with some magnificent time. So, so let me ask this. Uh, I, I live in LA. I mm-hmm. can't get away from people mm-hmm. no matter what I try and do. Fly fishing in LA. Like, if you're going to one of your favorite spots, mm-hmm. like, how, how uh, describe the typical sort of journey for you. Okay. Well, uh, I'm really blessed, too, that my brother loves doing this with me, so that's, it's nice to be able to have that time with him, but, so. So you're alone, but not alone. Yeah, I mean, but. Which is good. We'll that's separate good from each other pretty easily, too, and, and honestly, that's, after that's a safety thing these days. Yeah, just, uh, absolutely. Just, you know, as you're putting yourself in a little bit more hazardous uh, you know, you're, there's no trail to a lot of the places that we're going. So, uh, great example. We'll, we've been doing this recently, where you we find feeder creeks that will basically feed one of the bigger rivers, 
and you just hike down the creek until you get to the bigger river. It's usually in these canyons, so you'll have a lot of big giant pools. Uh, then you know you've you've got some snacks with you. I I take a, a camel pack that I freeze the bladder, and then I have basically a big ice block. Then I can put some beers in there and have cold beer. <laughs> I was gonna say a big, a big ice block yeah. in an urban farmhouse. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, and then you just you know you basically work your way up the river, get to another feeder creek, hike out, and it's gonna take you right back to the road, and there's your car. So now, if, if for those of us, our listeners who are not necessarily fishermen mm-hmm. or have been in that sort of space that you're in, how would you recommend that they get involved? I mean, I assume you got involved when you were a kid. Yeah, definitely. But if you're if you're an adult and you're looking forward to this, uh, boy, if it's if it's fly fishing just itself, you I mean, you start by buying the equipment and just going and doing it, and I don't know. Also, in this day and age, I I feel like. Most things can be learned by, you know, 10 minutes spent on YouTube going, okay, I got it. <laughs> you know, whether it's fixing your pipes or tying flies or, you know. Find an open field as well. Try and it. that's exactly because, yeah, yeah. I mean, the casting is definitely a difficult yeah. thing, but it's very rewarding for me. It is. Well, and I, I've known a number of people who are deeply into fly fishing, and I swear, I think almost to a person, they all describe it as, a meditative exercise as opposed to a fishing exercise. Absolutely, yeah. I just, I, I love that there's there's art, so I do my own fly tying. You have art there, you have science with the, you know, the entomology of knowing what, okay, that's a blah, 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 you know. Uh, there's there's the actual sport of, you know, yeah. and then going back to the art, you know, casting, all this stuff. You really get this mix. And, uh, I don't know, it's it's full circle for me in this. All right, and then, and then of course we have to leave it off, since almost everything comes down to a contest of measuring. Uh-huh. What's the biggest fish you've ever caught? Oh boy, uh, God! I do a lot of trout fishing, so I think probably it was a I think it was an eight pound Whoa. brown trout in South Island, New Zealand. Wow! Damn. Impressive. Sight, sight fishing too, which is really neat. Wow. So you, you stalk the fish. Really? Yeah. yeah. You, you, you are my fish. Exactly. I will kill you exactly. now so I can eat you. Actually, catch and release. Uh, that's a whole other subject. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just ruined it all for you. No, 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 no. But for some reason, it's just like the idea, like I'm stalking you. The only thing I can come out of the stalking is like I am now going to kill you. And yeah, no, that makes sense. That might be too many hours of listening to Investigation yeah, Discovery so Channel. That's what happens when you live in LA. <laughs> so uh, we're here at the Commons Brewery. We've been talking to Sean Burke. Uh, we've been joined by Larry Clouser for his invaluable insights. Uh, if you're in the Portland area, definitely come by the Commons, drink some beers. They got a lot of them, and they all rock. So. Yeah, and well, and it's just amazing, like. For a relatively simple palate, the range that we're seeing here, because again, we talked like, you know, it's not like playing around with a lot of super exotic ingredients. It is just a, 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 but still a very impressive span within that relatively narrow palate. Thank you. Sean, thanks so much, Thank man. you, guys. Really thanks, appreciate it. Appreciate it, yeah. Thanks for I'll coming. I'll take your hand one. Thanks for coming, Thank you for, uh, go, 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 yeah. <laughs> Okay, that was us talking to Sean, a little bit of Larry in the background, uh, enjoying some of the amazing beers that they make. Uh, Definitely, if you are in the Portland area, whether you live there or you're on a trip, 
this is a brewery that you're going to want to go visit. It's a, an extremely comfortable place and some really good beers and a lot of variety to them, huh? Yeah, and I mean, it's right there in the middle of everything. And yeah, it's the kind of place where I don't think you'd have any problem going anywhere. And they had some nice food there, yep. too. Although, uh, truthfully, we waited to eat until we got to our next stop, which is where we're heading to now. Uh, gigantic brewing. And we'll be bringing you that episode next time because we just don't have time for right now. We got to move on. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to answer some of your questions. We hope. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. beer. Alright, welcome back, boys and girls. This is the time and the part of the show when Denny and I like to try and pretend that we actually know something. Because you send in your questions, and we attempt to answer them. So, I think Denny... This week, it's your turn to start. This first question comes from Russell in the UK, and it's for you, Denny, because it's a mash question. Alrighty. It says here, hi, I've just listened to your one-year anniversary podcast. Really good. Say that again. Really oh, good. I love it. I know. <laughs> All right. This may be one of those questions that raises more questions rather than has an easy answer. Recently, I've been involved in a discussion about mashing for longer or shorter periods. It came up in multiple discussions of mashing overnight. I think that alpha and beta amylase convert starch to maltose and glucose in a ratio determined by the temperature of the mash. In my case, this conversion is over in 20 to 40 minutes, and testing with iodine after that time reveals no starch. So any further mashing serves no purpose and has no influence on the final beer. Others maintain that the enzymes are capable of converting the maltose into sucrose if left for a long time, resulting in a thin, alcoholic beer in extended mashes. Personally, I've never seen this extra conversion in longer mashes, but others maintain that this conversion does happen. Who's right? Russell. Well, Russell, um, it's kind of like everybody's right. Uh, but it, it kind of depends on how you want to define conversion. Yeah, you can convert starch to sugar in 20 to 40 minutes generally, especially with uh, the really highly modified malts that are around these days. But there's more to it than simply converting the starches to sugars. Um, the longer you mash, the more of the long-chain dextrins that are um, created by the beta amylase get broken down into short-chain dextrins by the alpha and make your wort more fermentable. Uh, this can go on for a long time. I definitely notice a difference in fermentability in my mashes between, say, 45 minutes and 90-minute and mashes. Um, the whole idea of short mash times comes from commercial brewers who have said that they uh, only hold their mash rest for, say, maybe 20 minutes. And that's fine for them. But what you have to take into account is that on a large commercial system, it can take maybe half an hour to an hour to mash in and an hour to two hours or even more to, uh, to louder out your mash. And you're in the temperature conversion range for pretty much all of that time. 
So even if you only hold your mash temperature for 20 minutes, you're still in the mash range for a whole heck of a lot longer. So, you know, yeah, you can convert starches to sugars in 20 to 40 minutes, but depending on exactly the kind of sugars you want, there can be benefits to doing a longer mash. Um, an overnight mash will not necessarily produce a thin alcoholic beer. A lot of that is determined by the recipe you use, which is uh, probably one of the best ways to determine body and final gravity, since mash temperature makes a, a whole lot less difference than it used to. Anything to add? No, I think you're pretty much right on. I've done some overnight mashing before just to test it out and see if I could save myself some time and increase my brew cycles. And I've never, I mean, I never noticed a difference, but now of course that's all anecdotal and the plural of anecdota is not anadata. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. Uh, no, I, I, I tend to think uh, we put a little too much emphasis on, the effect of time and really what we're doing. I mean, I think even nowadays we're seeing that the vaunted selection of mash temperatures doesn't matter as much in the final, in the final taste of the beer as it does, as does the recipe composition and whether or not you're actually just getting to your conversion. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think that the people who are out there who are thinking that if they mash at 153 instead of 150, there'll make a, a big difference. Uh, I think you're pretty much fooling yourself. Uh, use, use your recipe to control that kind of thing. But having said all this, I do think Russell brings up a, a, a good idea for an experiment that, uh, if we can convince some of our Igors to try the idea of doing an overnight mash, uh, without the fears of having a sour mash happen, I think it might be worthwhile to just double check and see, because I know for some people that if they could get away with splitting their brew days into an evening session for the mash, and a morning session for the lauder and boil that they could actually increase the amount of brews that they do. So that's not a bad idea to check it out and see. Boy, I could, I could be on board with that one, man. I could, I'll go for anything that will uh, give me a chance to brew more often. No, back to the editing minds for you. <laughs> yeah, right. Stuck in the guest room with pro tools. Okay. You get the next one. <laughs> All right. Uh, this one comes from uh, Chris who says, Hi, guys. I suppose this would be more of a question for Drew than Denny, given Denny's feelings on white stouts. Denny, do you have feelings about white stouts? Uh, my, my feelings on white stouts are uh, more sanguine than they used to be. Show me, uh, show me on the doll where the white stout touched you. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, I had a question about flavor composition in a white stout I'd like to brew. My wife makes amazing blonde brownies, a.k.a. blondies. And I'm looking to attempt to capture some of the elements of this recipe into an upcoming brew. It shouldn't be too hard to do with a white slash blonde stout, but my concern is one of the main flavor components of blondies is butterscotch. Seeing that this is a common off flavor, should I just scrap this idea entirely? Or do you think I should attempt this anyway? I'm not brewing this for a competition, so I suppose it's fine regardless. But I was just curious of your thoughts on intentionally in introducing a flavor that is considered an off flavor into this beer. Thanks, Chris. P.S. Butter is also a central component of Blondie's, but I don't even think I'm going to attempt incorporating that flavor. All right. So for my take on butterscotch, you're right that butterscotch is kind of usually considered to be an off flavor, you know, as a sign of uh, diacetyl, mm -hmm. just like your butter flavor that you're worried about. However, remember that there are a lot of styles out there that include 
uh, diacetyl as an actual flavor component. It's part of the style. So if it's something that you're going for intentionally, uh, I actually don't think it's a bad idea. Although I would avoid going for straight, pure butterscotch flavor like a butterscotch extract, because I think if you do that, then you're going to come off very candy-like and more like you're trying to make a Harry Potter butterbeer clone. So I would tend to play more with the caramel aspects of butterscotch, uh, particularly if you're not going to try and back it up with that sort of buttery slickness. So my usual take on this sort of thing, again, just like with a white stout, I would go for oats, maybe go for the golden naked oats, because the golden naked oats carry a, a caramelly flavor to them, in addition to having all those all that oaty goodness. Uh, but yeah, I would I would focus on maybe some nice uh, toasted notes, some light caramels, so something like in the light Simpsons range, uh, maybe even just do a C8 from Belgium, uh, what, the, what they call caramel pills, uh, not carapils. And then, yeah, use that to capture your butterscotch flavor. I would, depending upon how hard you want to drive it, I would also probably get my hands on some butterscotch extract. Uh, don't use like a, a Tarani syrup because those are way too sweet. Uh, and just do that, but try and go for more of that burnt caramel type thing. Get that sort of, uh, toffee aspect and not the pure butterscotch that would be my recommendation because i think that's a better fit yeah for beer and i would say don't be afraid of introducing a bit of diacetyl if uh, if you think that that's going to reinforce the flavor that you're going for i mean there there are many uh german pilsners or czech pilsners that uh that that's actually a a bit of the style component uh, I've had a tendency to get diacetyl thrown from uh, Irish ale yeast, so you might want to experiment with something like that in there. Um, you know, yeah. I you know you, um, you're going for something that is kind of out there, so don't be afraid to try an out there technique to do it. Yeah, and speaking of out there, I can't believe these words are about to escape my mouth. This might actually be a instance where. Using ringwood would be justified. Sure. Yeah, I was because ringwood throws a fruity component. It throws some sweetness and it throws some diacetyl. Ringwood's a, a little can be a little bit difficult to work with, and in, uh, in terms of keeping it roused and, and the aeration and stuff, uh, which is why I had suggested the the Irish ale yeast instead uh, get some of that same mm-hmm. character without <laughs> quite as much hassle to it. Well, and the Irish ale yeast is going to be more subtle. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's definitely true. Okay, I get the next one. And it is from Zach Keim. Keim. Uh, Zach, I'm sorry for butchering your name, but uh, I did. So uh, Zach says, hi, guys. First off, a background into my brewing process may be helpful. Typically, I do an infusion mash. However, I use a bag as a liner to aid with the Vorloff, and it helps with the cleaning. I still do an extended recirculation with a pump at mash-out for some reason, though. One of my favorite beers to drink is a Pivo Grodzek, uh, and I'm, I'm just totally butchered that name. Uh, A.K.A. Grotzer, A.K.A. Grotzky. Yeah, so, so please, all of you who know how to pronounce it, forgive me. Uh, a 100% smoked wheat beer. Per the style guidelines, this beer is supposed to be crystal clear. However, I always seem to have a problem getting a clear beer without extended aging, even with fining and gelatin. I've noticed with my barley-based beers that 
clear. I typically have clear wort into the brew kettle from the tun. I can't help but think my problem is twofold. Number one, the higher protein count of the wheat. And number two, lack of husk material as a filtration bed. Is my problem here that I don't have husks to bind with protein and clarify the wort so the bag liner isn't enough by itself? Could I solve this with rice holes? Is there a possibility that there's another problem, like not good enough cold break that's leading to this haze that's not present in my IPAs, so something about the wheat exacerbates the problem? Thanks for the podcast, Zach. Well, Zach, uh, you're definitely on the right track. It's the higher protein level in the wheat that's doing it. Um, I have to tell you that I have never correlated clarity of wort to the clarity of finished beer. Uh, I have had wort come out that's been unbelievably cloudy, and the beer would be crystal clear at the end. So, there are a couple things I would look at. Number one is your mash pH, because that will, uh, that will have an effect on your clarity. You want to make sure that you are in the correct range uh, for your mash pH. Uh, are you doing any kind of like cold conditioning of the beer afterwards? You say that it clears with extended aging. Are you keeping it cold, like say 33 degrees during that aging? Uh, how extended do you have to go? Oh, wait, I'm asking the questions now. I guess I'm supposed to be giving answers. Uh, so here's my answer. No, I don't think that rice hulls are going to do you any good because I don't think that, uh, that that's where your problem lies. Uh, I would look at pH first. Uh, I would then, uh, kind of look at the cold conditioning process you're doing. And I would thirdly just recognize that, uh, wheat has a lot more protein than barley and it's going to take a longer time. You're basically brewing a different beer here. Uh, in any comments to add there? No, uh, I'm pretty much in agreement with you. I think the Grotsky is such a sort of a strange style that, um, yeah, it's, it's almost always going to be the wheat. If you're, if you're dealing with, your barley mashes are coming out fine. Uh, yeah, you're, you've got a wheat issue going on, and I don't think there's any real way that you can solve it uh, in the mash ton unless you're trying to do a protein rest, in which case then you run the risk of you know, messing around with your head and all that, and I really just don't think it's necessary. Cold crash the hell out of yeah, it. Yeah, and again, keep in mind that this is a very light-colored beer, so it's entirely possible that uh, you're ending up with a pH that's too high uh, and you need to uh, to pull it down. Uh, so check mm -hmm. check into that also. Well, and also with the light-colored beer, you know, I think you're going to see things. If cold crashing is really helping, there's probably also a yeast component going on here. Yeah, there could very well be. Yeah, in, in, in the keg. So that, that would probably also uh, cause an additional point of haze. And it will always drive you nuttier when you're dealing with a pale beer over anything else. Right. So uh, at any rate, there are our rough guesses on that. Uh, and I think you got the last question today, huh? Yeah, I do. This one came in our, via our Facebook page, Experimental Brewing, uh, from Jamie Wilton, uh, another another Englishman. It's, an, it's a UK day here in uh, Experimental Brewing. So it says here, uh, Jamie says, Hi, guys from a cold and miserable northern England. He says, I've got a question for you on step mashing. I use a cool box mash tun, aka Denny's Cooler Special, and I want to make my first Belgian double. 
But everything I've read suggests that stepped mashing is essential to achieve an authentic Belgian result. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? Do you agree? That was my thought. Or do you think? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, do you agree? Or do you think that a single stage mash is fine? Thanks, guys, and keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Jamie, for the question. And uh, we had a little bit of a discussion about this uh, previously, but no. I pretty much do all of my beers as single infusion, but that's also because I'm incredibly lazy. Uh, now, I do still do a low temperature sack rest, even though I know we just poo-pooed the whole idea of like how much effect your mash temperature has on, on things. But I will actually uh, mash in around 148, 149 uh, for a lot of my Belgian beers, just on the off chance that it is giving me an increased amount of dryness and also to get more beta, beta amylase action. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't worry about it. If you look at the traditional Belgian schedules, they're absolutely barmy. Uh, multiple steps. I think the one that I know from Brasserie Vapour, which are the people who do Saison Pipe, uh, that's like four steps to get up to the main sacrification level. And then finally a fifth step to go to mash out and ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. Right. So I don't think it's absolutely necessary, but also at the same time, remember that if you're in a cooler, just because you're in a cooler doesn't mean that you can't do a step mash. Uh, whether you want to do boiling water infusions to pull your mash temperatures up or for, yeah, again, another chance where I'm going to say a word that nobody ever thinks come out of my mouth. Uh, you can also pull a decoction. I mean, this is exactly what decoctions were really made mm -hmm. for. Uh, you can pull a decoction, heat up that portion of the mash and throw it back in and heat up your, your overall mash done. And that's perfectly fine. So if you're absolutely obsessed with the idea of doing that, Go for it. Do that. Uh, but I don't necessarily think it's it's absolutely necessary. Uh, I've made plenty of doubles without uh, doing that. And uh, I'm really in today's day and age with the, all the character that we're getting from our malts. I don't think you need it. Yeah. I mean, I, for me, the, the, the big uh, catch is the word essential in there. No, it is in no way essential. Uh, you can certainly do it if you have the time and energy and curiosity to do it. Uh, but you can make a great, great double without having to go that route. I'm like Drew. Uh, I mash my Belgian beers at uh, 148 for 90 to 120 minutes. Uh, I find that that gives me the, the kind of, of body and mouthfeel that I'm looking for. Uh, and keep in mind, uh, in terms of drying them out, that uh, for a triple, you'll be adding sugar. For a, a double or a, a Belgian Dark Strong, you're going to be adding candy syrup in there. And that's going to help mm -hmm. dry it out also. So, uh, no, it's not essential. Do it if you feel like it. It's your beer. Do what you want to do. Wow. It's, Ramen. It's your beer. Do what you want to do. That could almost be a song, couldn't it? Let's not go there. Okay, I'm I'm uh, I'm promising not to sing, but uh, that could be the next ukulele. I was I was gonna say no. The problem is I sense ukulele in our future. Yeah, I wonder I wonder what funk ukulele would be like. We may find out. <laughs> the Isley Brothers as filtered by ukulele. Yeah. All right. Thanks for the questions, everybody. Yeah. Keep keep those questions coming in. Uh, you know, we may have a good answer for them and we may actually learn something trying to figure out what the answer is. So, uh, 
So, Drew, you have a quick tip for us today. Yeah, and this quick tip actually comes from a member of my club, uh, Craig Chaplin, who is well-known for making big, obnoxious beers, but also particularly for having a Plenty the Younger clone that he likes to make. And he also makes a Plenty the uh, Elder clone, but the younger one is the one that he obsesses over. And the key, of course, to that is to use hop extract. And so hop extract is now actually readily available from like Yakima Valley Hops and a couple of other places online. Uh, you can get them in 100-gram cans and use syringes to distribute it. But a lot of people just go and try and measure out their hop extract and then go squirt it into the kettle and then watch as it rolls off to the side of the kettle and sticks to the kettle walls and doesn't dissolve into the beer. A few words about hop extract. Uh, One, resist the temptation to ever put a pinky in there and taste it. You won't taste anything for a week. Uh, Two, use the syringes. But more importantly, just use the syringe to measure it. If you really want to get it to dissolve into your kettle, so that it actually goes into the beer and not just on the kettle walls. Squirt your uh, hop extract into some vodka that you have sitting in like a shaker jar and shake it to essentially break up the extract and dissolve it into the vodka and then add the vodka into your boil kettle. You'll still end up with some residue on the side of your kettle, but more of your extract is going to go into the beer itself. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, And, and it makes perfect sense, right? Because if you look at the hop extract itself... It's oily, it's tarry, it's thick, and we, ha- we know how oil and water mix together. So it makes perfect sense that you want to disperse it as fine as you can first before you get into and the And I got to say, there, there are different kinds of extracts, uh, and some, yeah. of them, some of them won't this is, need that trick. Yeah, most of the ones I've played with do. Uh, they're just, I mean, most of them are fairly, at least in the bittering extracts. Right. Yeah, any of the flavor extracts or aroma extracts, no, those aren't necessary. But with the bittering ones, uh, yeah, typically the more tarry they are, the more you need to dissolve them before you put them in the okay. kettle. So, so there you go. Quick tip. All right. And uh, you have a quick something other than beer for us too, huh? Yeah, I have two. Uh, one of which is if you're not watching Westworld because you think it's a terrible science fiction movie from the 70s that uh, involving killer robots, go watch Westworld on HBO. They're almost wrapped up with their season. I'm about halfway through the show right now. It is so good. So good. Uh, Evan Rachel Wood knocks it out of the park. Uh, Anthony Hopkins, you can pretty much watch him uh, read a telephone book and think it's fascinating. And he's in fine form here. So really, just go and give this a shot. It is an absolutely well-done show. Uh, The other one, uh, which is also near and dear to my Gen X heart, is a DJ online created a uh, guy go by the name of uh, Coins. Uh, DJ Coins made a Beastie Boys remix of a bunch of Beastie Boys tracks. It's about a 30 minute long album, but here's the trick. All the remix tunes, all the samples are the Beastie Boys rapping over Daft Punk samples. So it's a combination of Daft Punk and the Beastie Boys, and it's pretty damn awesome. (laughs) Okay. I'll take your word for that one. So, uh, so we've, uh, made it through another episode here before we get out of here. We just want to remind you about a couple experiments that are going on right now. We are, uh, wrapping up the IBU experiment where we're uh, a bunch of our Igor's brewed beers with hops that had been carefully analyzed, uh, before we started. So they knew exactly what the starting point was. We're going to get those beers analyzed and uh, see how close the actual IBU levels in the beer come out to the predictions that were made, because there's all kinds of variables that can, uh, that can affect those. 
And uh, we are also in process on our experiment with Brutan B, where the Igors are brewing two identical batches of beer, one with Brutan B and one without. They'll do blind tastings to uh, assess the uh, the effects of Brutan B and uh, see what the efficacy is. Uh, mm-hmm. Drew and I have uh, been using it in an uncontrolled uh, way, and uh, we... <laughs> Everything we do is uncontrolled, huh? Um, uh, and and we think that we're seeing some real improvements in our beer by using it. And uh, we'll see if the Igors find the same thing. And we'll have uh, Joe Formanek back on the show to discuss the results uh, with us. There you go. So, and hey, guys, don't forget, leave us, a, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you download these podcasts because it helps other people find us. That's right. So please. Leave a review. Yep, we really appreciate it. So, thanks a whole bunch for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website at experimentalbrew.com. You can also sign up to be an Igor and get involved in our experiments there. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook. Uh, we're on all kinds of homebrew forums out there. You can find Drew usually on the Reddit homebrewing forum. And you can email us to suggest uh, topics, to ask questions, to send in a recipe, or even just rant and rave. That is podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to email each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until the next episode, remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky. And we'll see you next time on Experimental Brewing.